Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. We're good at shooting this shit. There you go. <laughs> It's like listening to the orchestra warm up. It's a little oh, yeah. bit of an outtake. Can we do a blooper reel? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> On this podcast? The whole thing is a blooper reel. <laughs> Should I start? Yeah. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the How Many Saudis Would You Sue If You Could Sue Saudis edition. I'm Shane Harris of the Daily Beast, uh, in a slow news week in our nation's capital. Nothing going on. Nope. She's just not, out. We should not do the podcast. We just sit and chat all day. Let's go outside. We, we can practice saying, outside. how many Saudis can you, would you sue if you could sue Saudis? Three times sue. fast. Hardwood, softwood, redwood, dogwood, cottonwood, pinewood, hickory, beech, rosewood, teakwood, sandalwood, candlewood, walnut, hazelnut, apple, and peach. Are you a lumberjack? No, but that's whenever, whenever my sister or my brother or I would ask my dad, <laughs> How much wood would a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? He would sing that. God, ben sure is a, a man of, friends, of hidden resources. <laughs> I'm hidden sure they knowledge. thought that was just adorable. <laughs> 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 oh, tell us some more trees. Um, no, I'm here with that. We're, the gang is back together this week. We're all the four gang here. Is. Welcome back, Tammy. Thank back you. How was, where did you go, Indiana? Brussels. Brussels. God. The God. opposite of India. How crowded was your flight to Brussels? It was so empty that I had an entire really? middle row to myself, the Whoa. way there and the way back. Oh, that's that's. It was sad. Shane and I are flying to Brussels soon. We are in a month. Yeah. Maybe it'll be much less, not more crowded. Are we'll you look. on Brussels Airlines? No, we're on United, I think. We're just flying through Brussels. You were going to Brussels? Yes. Um, was your was it eventful? Was it sad? Um, no, and actually, there were a lot of people out on the street. The weather was beautiful. There were many heavily armed people on the street. But the citizens? No, the the security officials, okay. and I would expect that um, yeah. doing their jobs. But there were, in fact, tourists in the Grand Place enjoying the spring sunshine and eating waffles and drinking beer. That's so, nice. Resilience. Good. That's good. Well, good for them. Yes, and it took an extra hour to get out. Or rather, to get into the airport to get out of Brussels. That's so plan on that, that if you're sense. going to Brussels. Okay. We'll Don't do worry. We saved a ton of terrible news out of the Middle East Yay. for you. Thank you. Just for you. We were hoping you'd We come were back waiting and waiting, and now you're back. <laughs> Things are terrible. So uh, welcome back. Uh, and I've met our good friend Susan Hennessy there. Hello, Susan. Hi, Shane. And Ben Wittes. Hello, Ben. Yo. Yo. Uh, this week on the podcast, lawmakers want to give families of the 9-11 victims the power to sue Saudi government officials, but the Obama administration says that's a terrible idea. Syrian peace talks are in jeopardy of falling apart, but a ceasefire seems to be offering some reprieve. And Facebook swears it won't try to rig the presidential election against Donald Trump. Do you like how I worked that in there? Yeah. Yeah. Rig. Rig. That's his favorite word, you guys. Rig. That is. He the does. system is rigged. It's rigged. Because... It's rigged. Because of Mark Zuckerberg. And, and because I forgot to register to vote, yeah. which constitutes disenfranchisement, I, <laughs> I remember guess when I was, like, days. learning how to play Same Monopoly thing. and didn't know the rules to it and then lost, and I, too, said the game was rigged. Can I, can I just say that, that as a child, mm -hmm. when, when both Bernie Sanders and uh, Donald Trump complain about how awful it is that a party might choose to have a closed primary, um, I always scratch my head. It's like... I always think, why would a party want to let non-members vote for to for who's going to represent? Well, well it's Bernie, like, Bernie Sanders, who until last year was not a, not Democrat, a Democrat, and Donald Trump, who until recently was not a Republican. Right, so like, I, I think <laughs> it's like totally reasonable to say, okay, they join the party and they can run. But if 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 I were, let's say we were running here, the national. Uh, Scotch drinking while reporting podcast. Party, we are doing that, which, which at least two of us are doing. Um, and we said to be to vote in the Scotch drinking while reporting podcasts primary, you have to be a member of the Scotch drinking while recording podcast party. 
nobody would think that was unreasonable, that we didn't just let anybody in off the street to decide who gets to run for president on our banner. Well, see, Depends think, whether you're giving out the scotch for free. But when somehow when a Democrat or a Republican does that, it's considered, you know, some great constriction of the franchise. I think the more remarkable thing is sort of is their surprise, as if they're just learning about this as they go along. Right? right? They had they had noticed not, it earlier. It's not just it's like I mean, it's like they're learning in real time. There's something kind of the childlike wonder of being like, wait a minute, well, this you know, system is crazy. Yeah. Like for so both of these of guys, their basic civic education classes in high school were a really long time mm-hmm. ago. Yeah. They might just mm-hmm. have forgotten that whole closed primary Trump? thing. Follows Trump. He's like yeah. 60 something. When I was a child, I get emphasized child, and we did these kinds of things, my parents just said, you were unprepared. Ooh, cold. My parents would say, life isn't fair. Life isn't fair. My dad would and say, the there's rules. no such thing as accidents, only negligence. Ooh, harsh. That's a true story. Hey, wow. A yeah. can, we, can we that'll set your dad up to meet with Bernie and wow. uh, Donald? We'll have a spin-off therapy podcast where I just tell stories. All right. <laughs> Tune in for that. Um, let's start with uh, news this week. Uh, okay, so lawmakers, Congress has a bill uh, that would give families of the 9-11 victims the power to sue certain Saudi government, well, Saudi government officials, really, uh, or at least to begin the process of discovery um, for their possible role in the 9-11 attacks. Uh, we can get into a little bit of the intricacies of this, but essentially what this is, it's tweaking existing law, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but like essentially lowering certain loopholes that protect foreign governments from lawsuits brought against them by Americans for acts of terrorism that might be committed in the United States. It's a kind of a it's a bit of a tweak on the existing system that we yeah, have. Yeah, so I, I think I think if you enter this discussion at any point before after the beginning, you inevitably start using words like loopholes and tweak hoops um, and uh, barriers to blocking the courthouse doors for victims. And I think it's really worth backing up and sort of understanding what this law is and where it comes from. So I have battle scars from this issue because back when I was a Washington Post editorial writer, the Post was really the only entity uh, in American journalism that supported uh, the then, first the Clinton administration and then the Bush administration in resisting what victims of terrorism were trying to do in court. That's because uh, you're a member of the establishment. It's though. actually because I'm a heartless bastard. Yes. And, and They're not mutually exclusive. And I, <laughs> before, you, before you were defrocked. Um, but I actually came to feel very strongly about this. So uh, here's the background. The background is that... Just the facts, man. Yeah, the background facts <laughs> is that, you know, you can't sue a state without its consent. And um, in U.S. courts... Uh, generally speaking, if you try to sue a foreign government, you can't do it because it has what's called sovereign immunity, foreign sovereign immunity. And uh, the importance of that doctrine is it's one of the few things that protects U.S. Uh, from getting sued in foreign courts and a whole lot of foreign policy issues from being attacked constantly in the courts of, of countries around the world. Um, and so in the mid-1990s, Congress sort of created uh, a a set of exceptions to the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Doctrine. And the main one, uh, the most important one that nobody ever talks about, is when companies, when when countries act like companies, for example, state-owned airlines can be sued like any other airline, or a state-owned car company, right? But one of the things they slipped in was that countries on the list of state sponsors of terrorism are not immune for the acts of their uh, that they sponsor. But they have to be on that list. They have to be on the list. And um, the result of this was a series of suits against Iran. And people forget this, but Cuba, because Cuba had shot down the Brothers to the Rescue pilots and their families sued under this Uh, Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act waiver. Uh, And, of course, since countries don't show up to defend themselves, the countries end up, uh, the the plaintiffs end up getting these big default judgments. 
And then the question is, how do you, sol how do you satisfy them? And so what happens is they try to take the foreign as the, the frozen assets of the country, which the State Department cares a lot about because frozen assets are the things that protect our frozen assets in those countries, like, say, embassies. Um, and they also protect, they're also bargaining chips when we later kind of restore diplomatic relations with countries. <coughs> so the State Department goes in and tries to prevent the attachment of these assets. And then here's what happens, and it happens every, every time. Uh, members of Congress, and particularly members of the Senate, go to bat for their constituents. So a suspicious number of these bills come out of New York, out of Florida, out of New Jersey, the places where there are real you know, terrorist victims who are trying to get these, these assets. And Congress uh, tries to make them more available. So this week, two things happened, and they're both you know, big kind of setbacks to the effort to um, uh, you know, get this stuff under control. One is that the Supreme Court ruled this morning that the bank Markazi, which is the holder of a bunch of these assets, the Congress had passed a special law to allow the use of these assets held by bank Markazi to satisfy a bunch of judgments. And the Supreme Court upheld that against a separation of powers challenge. Uh, on a six to two vote. Um, the other thing that's happened that's gotten a lot more press attention is that the uh, uh, plaintiff's lawyers uh, really want to sue Saudi Arabia, and they can't because Saudi Arabia is not on the list of countries that sponsor terrorism. So what's, uh, there is now a bill that is, you know, the Obama administration opposes and congressional Republican leaders now both oppose, but which has gone pretty far, which uh, would relax that requirement. I don't think of it as a loophole. I think of it as a... It's a definitional issue. It's a definitional issue regarding who you can sue. And basically... It's a lowering of a threshold. It's lowering of a threshold, and it's saying you can sue a country that isn't even on the state sponsor of terrorism list even for an act that it may not have sponsored. No, 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 no. If, it doesn't say exactly that. Well, no. if some of its people, some of people... It can't acting, be a freelancer. Like, right. Yeah. It has to be its officials yeah. acting in the scope of their responsibilities yes. Yes. may have helped with. Right. Um, and this seems like a, a very uh, big door to kick down. So, um, let, so for example... If a Saudi embassy official facilitated a student visa for one of the 9-11 hijackers who came here to get a pilot's license, that would be an official act in his official capacity that would then make the Saudi government vulnerable to a lawsuit? Hypothetically. Yeah. Hypothetically. Uh, hypothetically, somewhere in 28 classified pages of a not-released congressional report, such there, a scenario may have been described. <laughs> isn't there also a jurisdictional issue as to whether or not the activity in question took place within the United yes. States? Yes, yes. now you can go out the, the United States? Well, before it had to be external, and now it can be internal. Right, so the... the um, under, under the, under law, the bill. Passes, under yeah. the bill. But, but, but the biggest issue, I think, because uh, some of the activity... Um, there, there, there has always been, if I'm remembering the FSIA right, there has always been uh, an allowance for torts within the United States and right. for terrorism outside the United States. And what this does is it merges them and says sort of tortious terrorism inside the United States. Okay, um, so pulling back from the details of whether this is about closing loopholes or something bigger... It, it seems to me that from a political perspective and a policy perspective, there's a fundamental shift here. All of the, pre, the, the states that are on the state sponsors of terrorism list are, you know, what previous administrations would have described as rogue states. They are adversaries of the United States. Right. Iran and Cuba, the United States didn't even have diplomatic relations with, although it does now with Cuba. Their assets in the United States were frozen because there was a rupture in relations. This is opening the door to lawsuits with countries with whom we have normal relations, where there's a lot of interchange of civilian and official varieties, where there's trade, um, and where there are, therefore, a lot of complex foreign policy interactions. 
And then Saudi Arabia, of course, is more than that. It is an important strategic partner for the United States in a range of um, issues, including, ironically, fighting terrorism uh, in, in terms of the war against ISIS. And so it seems to me that that's what's relevant about this legislation. Um, but the other piece of it is, you know, it's that sort of the shift in perceptions of Saudi Arabia in this country that, yeah. you know, there, it's been ebbing and flowing ever since 9-11. But the idea that when it comes to terrorism, Saudi Arabia is both arsonist and firefighter. And so there's this deep ambivalence in the minds of many American policymakers about the role that Saudi Arabia plays. So on on Tammy's office wall is a uh, cartoon by uh, our friend and neighbor Tom Tolls, which has uh, the Saudi Saudi Arabia uh, with its little pet Al Qaeda monster, and the first frame it has the guy petting feeding the little monster and saying, now remember, don't bite the hand that feeds you. And the beast says, I won't. And in the next frame, the beast is really big and he's feeding him some more. And Saudi Arabia says, remember, you promised not to hand, bite the hand that feed you. And the beast says, I remember. And in the third frame, Saudi Arabia has been swallowed by a giant Al-Qaeda monster, except for the hand. Uh, which is hanging out of the beast's mouth. And that is Saudi Arabia, both as arsonist and fire. That's pretty mm-hmm. good, actually. That's so, a brilliant cartoon. <laughs> so sort of it's on my the... object lesson. I'm, I'm doing it a little early. We'll put a picture up on the website. So sort of on this theme of um, the complexity of U.S.-Saudi relationships, um, President Obama is currently in Riyadh, yes, Indeed. as we speak. It's there today. Um, so, so he's there. So there's this visit. This is sort of the warming of relations. Then at the same time, his, um, his deputy national security advisor, Ben Rhodes, gave an interview, I think, in the past few days. I think it was a <laughs> podcast interview, actually, um, where he noted that um, Saudi Arabia had provided, quote, the seed money for al-Qaeda. Um, so it seems like the Obama administration is doing a little wow, bit. Oh, said that. Yes. Um, of sort of a uh, a dance. He's a here. real diplomat, you know. Jeez. That Ben Rhodes. Well, he would know. He worked on the 9/11 commission. Well, um, so there's there's some mixed signals coming out of the administration right now. Well, what, are, what are we to make of it? Right. So they are definitely trying to play to two very very different audiences at the same time. On the one hand, um, it, we know from the Atlantic interview that President Obama has his own. Uh, gaps in perception and, and policy with the Saudis and, um, sees them and among others as kind of whiny free riding, uh, partners of the United States. And so there's that. Uh, so they're not, they don't want to do them any favors. On the other hand, the Saudi role in, in holding the Middle East, uh, close, you know, trying to, recreate stability in this chaotic region and helping to fight ISIS is a really, really crucial role, both in preventing the flow of financing to this organization and and those that support it, but also actually in funding and sustaining, for example, the Jordanian government um, and advancing counterterrorism interests in the Syrian peace talks. And so there's a lot at stake right now in the relationship with Saudi Arabia. At the same time with the domestic audience, Obama has been saying, we're energy independent now. We don't rely on the Middle East for oil anymore. You know, we don't care if, uh, if the Saudis have low oil prices. They have to fix their own internal problems themselves. And, and he knows he's going to have to release these missing pages yeah. from the 9-11 yeah. report. So I bet that Ben Rhodes, in a very calculated way, was laying the groundwork, you know, so that when the pages come out, people are already basically ready to see what they have to say. And we should say, too, that the Saudis themselves have said they want the pages out. They said that back in 2003. And we basically know what's in those pages, for the most part. Um, and on the bill, too, the president has said he will, and they haven't said he'll veto it. They strongly indicated they'll veto it. So, I don't know. We'll see whether or not the bill has the support to override a veto that it's drawing now. But Hillary Clinton notably came out in support of it. After she was asked about it on George Stephanopoulos' show and professed not to have read it an hour later, a campaign tweeted that she supports it. But okay, it doesn't take that <laughs> long to read a bill. <laughs> Anywho, 
Um, all right, moving on. Uh, it's better Siri- than the Trump who says that he has read a bill and then an hour later hasn't read the bill. Right. So. That's true. Or I mean, it's also good to know how a bill becomes a law. Which, <laughs> which be, Trump might not be entirely clear be on. There's yeah. a great schoolhouse rock on it. Yeah, it's <laughs> really good. Tweet it right over. It's on YouTube. Um, all right, Syrian peace talks are basically on the verge of falling apart. Looks like they might fall apart. Well, they've definitely broken down for now because the Syrian opposition has pulled out. Pulled out. Um, the Western diplomat told Reuters earlier today that it would probably take a year to get them restarted again. Uh, so a ceasefire, though, there's some indications... Uh, for, we have an excellent law firm post actually on this that might be offering some reprieve in certain areas. But uh, Tammy, why don't you sort of tack the, uh, the peace talks issue? Yeah. So look, I I think the ceasefire was something that I was skeptical about it, whether it would even take hold on the ground. I think a lot of people have been skeptical about its effects the whole way along, in large part because. Um, the Russians never really stopped their aerials, aerial assaults over the course of the so-called ceasefire, and the Syrians and their allies on the ground kept pushing uh, in the south of the country throughout this period of the ceasefire, um, saying again that they were pushing ISIS. They were also they were pushing areas that are partly held by ISIS and partly held by uh, rebel groups that are supported by by the Gulf states, and so. It's never been a complete ceasefire. It has held in certain local areas. And for a while, for a number of weeks, it did facilitate humanitarian access, which was the main goal, just literally to try and save people's lives and give these beleaguered civilians a break from the daily misery of this long war. Um, I think what we've seen in recent weeks is, number one, that... Um, ISIS has taken advantage of some of the Syrian government's gains on the ground, uh, and ISIS has advanced its own offensives in the north in ways that have really harmed the rebel coalition. And so the rebel coalition is less willing to tolerate a ceasefire that constrains them and not their enemies. Um, and the other thing is that the Syrian government has completely um, interfered with stymied aid deliveries. They've literally gone onto trucks pulled off um, medicine, pulled off food, probably diverting it to their own troops, uh, and they've outright refused to allow convoys to go into a lot of areas. And so civilian suffering is significant, and the ceasefire isn't helping because the Syrian government isn't cooperating. And as a result, the opposition has now pulled out of the talks. Um, One of the things that I think was really notable during the ceasefire period, and the lawfare piece talks about it, was the number of demonstrations that sprang up immediately yeah. in major population centers. As soon as people weren't wor- worried about barrel bombs, they came out and, again, um, you know, insisted that they wanted the fall of the Assad regime. The determination so, was just amazing. So wait, hang, hang on, because I want to... Um, so the lawfare piece in question is uh, by a uh, Syria analyst named Sloan Speakman. Um, and one of the the first arresting claim of this is that the ceasefire has been much more effective than people acknowledge, and that it has, in fact, produced a dramatic uh, decline in violence. And so I want, I'm curious whether to reconcile what you're describing now, which is a very ineffective ceasefire, with what's in that piece. Is it that that piece described a period of time and we've moved past that, or is it that the piece is wrong, or is it that the piece is uh, describing a diminution of violence that's not entirely complete? What, wh- how do you reconcile what you're saying now with what Sloan argues in that piece? Well, I think the basic question is how do you define the effectiveness of a ceasefire? If you define it merely in terms of decline in civilian casualties, then yes, it has been effective because in large parts of the country, the violence has declined. If you mean effective in terms of freezing the state of battle on the ground um, or freezing the the power balance between the parties on the ground, it's been entirely ineffective because the government and its allies have continued to press their case uh, to the disadvantage of the rebel forces. And ISIS has continued to press its case to the disadvantage of the rebel forces. But sort of the elephant in the room still seems like it is the future of Assad, right? So even if they're engaging in peace talks, it seems like if those peace talks are not even sort of um, 
bringing up the question of whether or not he has a future, like, can they really be meaningful peace talks? Um, last week, um, Ben Taub, who um, is 25 years old, completely remarkable journalist, um, wrote this incredible piece for The New Yorker um, called uh, The Assad Papers, I think that's the title, yeah. um, and actually uh, published it in Arabic as well. Yeah. It's the first time The New Yorker has Amazing. ever done a piece in Arabic. Yeah. Um, that sort of, it, it's a piece that kind of is about um, the process of collecting evidence about Assad's war crimes. Um, and some of the stories are just, I mean, they're, they're really difficult to read. They're really sort of just, just wrenching stuff. Um, but also, the claim is that they have really concrete proof that Assad was aware of this, that he was, uh, that he directly ordered this stuff, that this was, um, you know, that they, I think um, there's a quote in the piece that says that this is, they have the strongest case since Nuremberg um, of on war crimes. And so, do you have any sense of whether or not we, the United States is weakening on our resolve to not have a, a few Assad in the future, whether or not uh, our foreign partners are weakening in their resolve? Our foreign partners, in other words, the Sunni Arab states who've been supporting the rebel groups, are bound and determined to see Assad out of office. No question. Um, is anyone think, other than the Russians and Assad not of that and, line? The and the Iranians, of course. And, you know, honestly, I think President Obama's resolve on this question has always been questionable. Um, and I think that we've seen a number of times very ambiguous statements coming out of Secretary Kerry after his talks with the Russians and after sessions of the peace negotiations in Europe. And just today, I think it was, or, or yesterday, Obama was speaking uh, on CBS uh, about his phone call with Putin that he did uh, that was largely about Syria. And he told CBS that the biggest sticking point between the U.S. and Russia in solving the Syrian conflict is the issue of Bashar al-Assad's future. Honestly, it amazes me that five years have gone by and the United States government is still working on the premise that somehow it will persuade Vladimir Putin to, to drop Assad and then the war will be over. Five years they've been trying to do this. It has not worked yet, and I don't understand why American policy is still premised on the idea that we can flip the Russians on Assad. So I've said like several times, I think, on the podcast that I think the policy is just wait the clock out until January 20th, 2017, and make it someone else's problem. I mean, you're this, so cynical, Shane. <laughs> you are. You, like, this I seems like, like just another. I mean, it seems but, like you're again put, like, offering another like point of evidence. But to it, that maybe theory. you're right. But even if you're right, I would say that that's a very poorly thought through policy because this this war and the ripple effects it's generating are endangering European unification. Yeah. They're endangering Mediterranean security. They're endangering so many broader American and global security interests. We just can't wait it out. Okay. Um, Sorry, you got my dander up there. No, that's yeah. good. Keep the dander up. Do it, because I'm sure <laughs> this, this won't be the last time man. that we're talking about this on this show. That's for sure. Um, let's move on to Facebook. Uh, employees at Facebook have a regular kind of like online, it's not really a, it's kind of like a jam session, right, with Mark Zuckerberg where they get to... It's like an Ask Mark. It's like an Ask it's Mark. It's like a town hall, but it's online. Yeah, it's an, kind it's of an thing. Ask Mark anything. Um, where they get to pose a series of questions that they want to ask Zuckerberg and they take a poll as to which one they should ask. And recently, I guess the fifth most popular question, or a popular question was, what should Facebook do, if anything, to stop Donald Trump from being elected president? Uh, it's not clear whether or if, uh, uh, whether Mark Zuckerberg responded or what he said, but Facebook later was forced to come out with a statement um, that it would not uh, do anything to try and, uh, it, it, it welcomed all candidates to use their platform, that it would not block anyone's content from one particular candidate, it would do nothing to skew the results of searches towards one candidate, yeah, but what about the subliminal? I mean, they're already so good at like on that in that little box on the right, showing me the shoes that I looked at two weeks ago, and then they just keep showing me those shoes until I Bernie have Sanders to buy them. All right, so I have to. I mean, look, this is a story that kind of um, it reemerges almost every election cycle. Sort of last time, I think Google was kind of in the crosshairs of, um, and there was a lot of speculation that Google had potentially a dispositive effect on. Um, uh, elections in India in 2014 based on their search al algorithm. But sort of to your point, 
It's not possible for Facebook not to influence an election, in part because um, they've gone all in on confirmation bias. Their entire <laughs> platform is all about showing you the stuff you want to see. And so we're now in sort of a world in which it's not just that campaigns are advertising to us online and we're sort of we're being targeted and as it's not just that you have Fox News and MSNBC feeding you confirmation bias right it's that anything to the contrary whether it's news stories or friends posts or ads or anything else is actually being actively eliminated and so you know, I, I understand that there, I mean, there's, uh, an order of magnitude difference between that and sort of its, um, its effects on, on policy sort of all over the place versus, you know, tweaking the, the Trump button up or down, right? right? Like sort of influencing U.S. election. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, it's interesting how, uh, you know, these companies sort of come out, they give relatively tepid responses of, um, oh, no, no, we'd never do something like that. Not deliberately. <laughs> I, I'm hung up on a really antecedent question, which is, why shouldn't they try to influence the election? No, I okay, mean, you say your piece that I'll say mine no, about this. No, because look. Because <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm hung up on that too, but we're going to have different answers. Well, look. And they are a scotch deep into this. So get businesses ready. try to influence elections all the time. And Over, some, overtly. Well, wait, they some, don't promise like coupons to their customers who vote the right way. No, no, That's no, no, bribery. No, 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 no. No one's talking about bribery. But if let's call this comp this big powerful company the New York Times. <laughs> it's a big media company that publishes things for a living and that uh, and they issue an endorsement editorial. And nobody sits around having these terrible conversations. What if the New York Times tries to influence an election? And Facebook... But Ben, but that's we, specious because everyone expects, and the New York Times itself requires a standard where the news coverage, the content, the product they provide is not biased. Well, well first of all, not every news company does that. And we don't say about uh, Fox News, for example, um, you know, what if they try to influence the election? Of course they try to influence the election. And we don't say similarly, and many conservatives, by the way, would say about the New York Times news side that, of course, they try to influence the election. I don't personally share that view, but lots of Americans think that. And by the way, if they did, I would consider that not the greatest journalism in the world, not my vision of journalism, but I wouldn't consider it a threat to democracy or... Now, that brings you to a company like Facebook, which controls a giant feed of information to you uh, and has to make all sorts of algorithmic choices about um, what's going to do, what should and shouldn't be in that. And I'm not sure I entirely understand if you imagine a say, perfectly hateful uh, individual running for president, like, say, Donald Trump, um, why, whose presidency in Facebook's corporate opinion would be bad for Facebook and bad for Facebook's consumers. I'm not sure why the uh, expression of that is per se verboten or inappropriate. Okay, Shane, what's your so, take? <laughs> well, Facebook's response to this was telling. Because they came out and they said, look, we are a platform that is open to all users. Facebook stays neutral in political debates. We welcome you to post content. Of course, it has to comport with their terms of services. But essentially holding itself out as a public square, a public forum in which everyone is free and equal to come. And promising that they would not do anything to try and tweak the results that you might see uh, in your feed to try and sway your opinion. Troubling point number one, they have tried to do that and experimented with doing it on a number of occasions, which they've had to cop to, and it's been shown to be pretty effective. They can actually turn down certain things that you see and turn up contrary points of view. Um, so that's one. They have a history of sort of tweaking with the sauce a little bit when they say that they're not going to and not being honest about what the recipe is. Um, second thing I find troubling about it is that that many employees within Facebook, when they're neutrality is ostensibly their position, actually thought that they should be doing something to try and actively sway the election 
away from Donald Trump, knowing the power that they have with 1.04, what is it, billion customers who are using Corporate Facebook. values. Right, who are using Facebook to find information that come to trust Facebook as being a source for information. And the third thing I will say about this is that this is a company that, while not a media company per se, clearly wants to be one and wants to also be a search company and is benefiting almost exclusively, as far as I can tell, from A, the content of their readers, and B, the work of people like me, <laughs> to then you know profit off of and now sell ads on. That's looking a hell of a lot like a media company to me. And in this country, media companies, editorial boards aside, do not try and actively tweak and reprogram what people are seeing to the benefit of one candidate or another. Okay, hang on a second, though. Because when Facebook says they're neutral, and I think like a neutral position is a fine position for them to take, but they're not. And let me give you one example that everybody will, will, will remember. There's nothing subtle about it. When the uh, Supreme Court came down with the marriage opinion, um, Facebook allowed everybody to change their Facebook images. No, that was that's a user-created filter. That wasn't a Facebook-created filter. Uh, when is that right? <laughs> Facebook allows know. users to create filters for all kinds of things like that, whether it's Je suis Paris or the gay marriage decision, and anyone can, and those things do go viral but, when they're user-created, but they're not Facebook-created. But created. I think your premise is, it, we're still talking about essentially forms of speech, right? So corporations, um, they they exercise their influence, but essentially it's speech influence, right? It, it's, yeah. it's bringing forth, forward an idea. What we're talking about in terms of companies like Facebook and Google um it's it's not necessarily speech. They have tools and and and, and tools that are utterly legally un, um, not constrained um, that can have really pernicious effects. So just sort of for one example, um, Facebook did, and this might be what Shane is um, sort of referring to. They did a social experiment in 2010 um, with 61 million users, where they showed um, the users when their friends had voted. Right, right. You click the little "I voted" button, and it like you know the American flag comes up, and it's like a little thing, um, and it showed that if somebody Facebook friend has voted, they are 3.9% more likely to vote. And so the calculated effect of this was that there were 340 additional votes cast in the midterm elections because of that button. Now imagine if you only showed that button to a group of individuals that had identified as a particular political party, or had identified as um, supporting a particular corporate right, interest. Right, they could suppress voter turnout. That's, so right, so boost it doesn't it become just the New others. York Times sort of making this statement, um, you know, and everybody sort of weighs the ideas, and, and sure, it's um, it weighs more heavily because it's the front page of the New York Times. It's it's actually a form of voter suppression um, that is, I think, I think it's it's scarier and and it's far less visible. Um, which makes it sort of, uh, the concern for me is the way that these companies are, are, are coming forward to say, no, 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 we would never do that. Um, definitely Trust don't worry us. about yeah. regulating <laughs> this. Definitely don't create laws, right? That like this, this Not really a is a here. space mm. that. So you're suggesting that the core issue here is about transparency and that they have the ability to do this, whether they abjure it or not. And so we, should, we as a society should compel them to be transparent about the way they filter and shape because they are inevitably filtering and shaping. I, I mean, I think so. I think that there needs to be at, at an absolute minimum transparency. And I actually think that this is probably an area like much of sort of uh, um, electoral law, campaign finance and elsewhere, um, that is calling for uh, a different type of regulatory regime. Um, and, and is calling for sort of, um, for protections and interventions in this space. I mean, imagine if Google Maps, uh, started sending people to the wrong polling places. Yeah. Ooh, that would like, be so there devious. is just so much in this space that could really dramatically change, um, people's ability to sort of exercise their franchise. That's like, I think this stuff is terrifying. I really do. I, I, I'm hesitant. I'm, I'm reluctant to embrace regulation because I think I actually agree with Ben that, you know, at the end of the day they are, there are, there are still a company even though they're tilting towards being a media company and I suppose it is their right if they wanted to actually try and shut down 
Trump supporters. I just think it's shitty. Right, and then I mean, there would be a I'd rather, headline I'd rather see saying, the marketplace rise up and say, like, well, then we're just people just going to say, we're not going to use Facebook anymore if you're going to actually censor. Right, it know, would be. So say. the question is, do we have confidence that it would become known if Facebook decided that as a corporate value it was going to become the MSNBC of online social right. media platforms? And then the, the market would create a Fox News of online social sure, media. Sure. Pro- but how would we know? Where you know where would the whistleblower come from to say actually we've tweaked all our I algorithms? Would, I wonder there might be that, or it might actually just become so just like plainly, or it might become so seemingly obvious in the kinds of posts that that a sort of well-founded conspiracy theory started building on social media and people started asking <laughs> questions. And we should say by the way that part of the reason why this story has been getting traction is Mark Zuckerberg last week at the Facebook Developers Conference made a speech in which he did not name Trump by name, but clearly was blasting Donald Trump. And, you know, it, it made a lot of people go, wait a second, why is the CEO of this social media company coming up and saying, effectively, this candidate doesn't represent American values? And does that mean, and then the, the employees asking him, hey, can we do anything to stop Donald Trump? It, it certainly, you know, created a lot of fuel for the perhaps misguided impression uh, that Facebook would like to harpoon the Trump campaign, right? So uh, just a factual matter, numerous news organizations describe this as Facebook's uh, rainbow filter and as a rainbow filter provided by the company. Um, okay, I yield on the factual fact point. But, but how does that, how is that any different than, for example, Mark, Buck, Mark Zuckerberg saying, I don't think we should be building walls or sort of supporting values? I see that as just as more like the New York Times editorial, which doesn't bother me, whereas stuff like, you know, yeah, subtly agreed. influencing yeah. who decides to right. vote. machinery on what it's gets overt versus covert so, so first influence. Of all, first of all, if you're offering as a company the ability to celebrate pride, which for the record I, you know, have, uh, I'm perfectly happy with, and you're not offering the ability in the wake of the same decision to, uh, 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 regret pride um, with very dark rainbow colors that express sadness on your profile picture, you shouldn't be claiming to be a neutral public square. You're a company that is, you know, that is uh, subtly offering users options, sometimes subtly, sometimes not, that reflect values that you choose to make. Um, and I don't see why that that's okay when it comes to uh, um, the preference for the, the five members of the Supreme Court who voted X way on this decision over the four who voted Y way than it is to say, uh, you know, this candidate versus that candidate. I don't, like, I guess Facebook is answerable Facebook to its could, shareholders, Facebook could not to the public. You uh, know, I'm down with both of your free market arguments, Shane and Ben. I come back to the point that Susan was making about transparency and, you know, whether that transparency is achieved through government regulation or whether we can simply distinguish between over attempts to influence and covert attempts to influence um, and expect as a society, you know, have a norm that companies who are engaging, who have views on campaigns will engage in overt forms of influence, not covert. Yeah, so this, by the way, I just found the Celebrate Pride page on Facebook, and it says, okay. let's celebrate pride from all of us at Facebook, happy pride. Okay, so, so Shane and Susan, you are witnesses. I was wrong, and yes. Ben was right. No, no that's, not, that's not my point. <laughs> my point is, what's, if they said, let's say fuck Trump, and you can have your picture. I don't think any of Why us are arguing. Really no, I think so, none of us are arguing with that. I think what we're concerned about are the subtler, non-transparent, covert forms of influence that are about tweaking what shows up on your feed or feeding you information that changes your behavior in certain predictable ways without telling you. Okay, so now here's, here's my question. What if you don't have a problem with them doing that in order to get you to buy things that would... No, I that find that cause... irksome too, no, but no, no, I know but, they're going to do but it. That's their business model, right? <laughs> right. Right. And so you're not saying there's anything threatening to democracy about buy these shoes. You know, you sure you don't want these shoes? You sure you don't want these shoes? Um, 
And so what if their judgment is the business climate for their revenues is completely different if Donald Trump is president and the entire world hates America than if a, a sane person is president and people might actually use Facebook? It's not a question about their motivation. It's a question about their methods. But, but, but why is that? I but mean, look, I'm not, I'm not saying like Facebook is evil or stupid or wrong. I'm saying if this is the direction we're moving in, and again, this is all sort of speculative. They say they're not doing this. Um, but, but if we're moving into a world in which this kind of thing can happen, I, as a citizen, do not want a corporation to have that kind of power. I think, I think that we should, um, I think we, we should break should up the big it. social media companies. Exactly. We should break them up. <laughs> identify the ones that are too big. Um, right. I just, like, look, this is, um, it's, it's all speculative and, and you're right. Um, that said, I don't, um, I don't really mind being, I don't know, duped or, or, or nudged to buy a particular pair of shoes. Um, I, I do care about, um, being aware of, of what, um, uh, what influences I'm consuming in terms of, of who I vote for. That's, this is sort of my core right as, as an American. I take it more seriously. Well, I would like artisanal social media companies that cater specifically to my biases and reinforce them without apology. And preferably that no, none of your friends are on so that they're not really social. Yeah. Oh, you should use Twitter. Right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to object lessons. Uh, I already did my object. You did your object lesson. You're a good so boy. Preemptive object. You finish your vegetables early. Now you can have dessert. Uh, I'll do my object lesson, which is um, if you have not seen it, go back and watch uh, the third segment from last Sunday's 60 Minutes, which revealed... Um, That's the show your grandparents watch, right? Yes, it is. <laughs> yes, and then we watch every Sunday over the family. Do you? Really? Yeah, we love 60 Minutes. Oh my god, it's so great journalism. Oh, that's darling. Did you watch 60 Minutes? <laughs> I just like the idea. Like, you know. Oh, that's nice. And a pot roast. Um, actually, it was a pork roast. Um, no, but so they had this, uh, this, I was actually like throwing my hands up in the air and cheering because they totally, uh, did a big piece that revealed one of my sort of little closet obsessions I've had for quite some time, which is something called signaling system number seven. Yes, it's like everywhere now. Yes, SS7 is a system that is used basically to route global phone traffic from one network to another. Um, but if you know how to use it, uh, how to exploit this vulnerability in it, anyone, and I do mean literally anyone who can figure out the vulnerability, and it's not that hard apparently, can listen into someone's phone call. So 60 Minutes <clears throat> got a group of German hackers to do this, and they gave a, uh iPhone to a member of Congress, Ted Lieu from California, and they called him up, and they had a chat. And later, they went to his office and replayed him his conversation, which had been intersected by hackers in Germany exploiting the SS7 vulnerability. Doesn't and that violate some federal laws? They got permission. Oh, they got permission. Yeah, he knew he was. He knew he was being part okay. of something. Uh, <clears throat> I have a piece uh, on SS7 that'll be out this week in the Daily Beast. You can check it out. But it's one of these things that when I found out about it. It was like, how do not more people know about this? Oh, yeah. it's it geek been, love for sixty yeah, minutes from Shane. Right? And it had been written about. <laughs> I mean it was maybe it was there for everyone to know, but like very interesting. It's been known for years and yet, hmm, our intelligence community has not seemed too keen to shore up that vulnerability. I'm looking at you, Susan Hennessy. I know nothing about I know nothing about SS7. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, check it out. Sixty minutes. It's not just for old people, it's for hackers. And Shane's. And me. <laughs> it's a niche audience, but those are the three groups. Uh, Susan, what's your object lesson? So my object lesson, you might be worried about Shane because it might put you out of business. What? So this is a... Um, my budding career is a gardener. <laughs> an open source platform, sort of a Google platform that's essentially designed for do-it-yourself amateur conflict reporting. Oh, yeah. I know what? Do you, do you use this? I too got this press release today. Okay, so this is this totally weird thing. Oh, um, oh and it's yeah. It's a tool that essentially um, sort of aggregates and makes it easier to search um, like YouTube videos and maps and um, and you know all kinds of, of online open source material to look at things like um, you know gain information about attacks, allegations of chemical chemical weapons use. 
troop movements. Um, so my reaction to this was sort of, well, well, that's a disruptive technology <laughs> for you right there. Yep. Um, but so, does it include the capability to look at a photo that's going viral and figure out whether it's a photo from a conflict that happened 20 years ago so that's recirculating. This is totally interesting, and I did think about you. And apparently, um, this is the press release, um, today we are announcing the handover of mo Montage to Storyful, the leading organization for verifying social video for news and media. Oh, yeah. So apparently quality they're control. going to attempt to do some kind of quality control on this. I still think what could possibly go wrong here. <laughs> Um, sort of a, um, a, everybody's an intelligence analyst. Everyone's um, a journalist. Everyone's a war reporter. There you go. But you know, that's been happening anyway. I mean, I found it really interesting, for example, over the course of the Syrian civil war, just how many, um, freelance military analysts, if you will, there are out there who are um, using, you know, open source satellite data or using, um, Twitter feeds from people who claim to be on the battlefield or whatever to generate, um, analysis. It's happening already. So all this does is, um, facilitate it, I guess. And if it adds a quality control element, so much the better. But I don't think there's any way to escape this world. It's where we're headed. Yeah. Maybe I'll start dabbling. Sure. Give it a shot. Report back. Maybe I'll start dabbling in lawyering. <laughs> Go ahead. Ooh. That's a crime. I'll no, just try it. It's, oh, yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. First Burn. Amendment. Burn. Side, apparently. <laughs> oh, this time, Susan. Uh, that brings us to the end of the podcast. Uh, Rational Security is a production of Spaghetti on the Wall Productions. You can find links to our past shows at SpaghettiOnTheWallProductions.com. Uh, don't forget to tweet us at R-A-T-L Security. Send us your questions, which we will try to get to, I promise. We did have a question recently that we all just realized we are completely incapable of answering. Don't ask us hard questions. Don't ask us hard stuff that we don't questions. know anything about Jesus, you guys. Jeez, ask what on. our favorite color is. We can answer yeah, that. Yeah, like seriously, like, you know, just what I have ben, to do Ben, how much night. do you love America? <laughs> so much. So, so, so much, much. So much love. Uh, and when you do download the podcast, please, as always, leave us a rating and comment. We really appreciate it. The show is edited by Jen Howell. Our music was performed this week by Mark Zuckerberg and the rapacious election result riggers. Ooh, Not nice. Bad. Mm -hmm. All right. They're a metal band. <laughs> metal cover band. <laughs> stealing other people's work. <laughs> no, no, no. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan, who is doing a cover in her theme music, but doing it as beautifully as it was originally yeah, exactly. Uh, on behalf of all my friends, Ben Wittes, Tamark Hoffman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. Watch 60 Minutes. We'll see you next week. Bye. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> 